This is Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our Lord is in the name, our, name, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we have been mentioning this morning, we're in the middle of a series, the Psalms of Ascents, looking at the long walk of obedience in the same direction. Those Psalms coming out of the middle of the Psalter that look at the songs that the Israelites sang as they walked up to Jerusalem for the ceremonies three times a year. And as we've been seeing, as we've been walking through this series, they are really Psalms of discipleship. They emphasize submission. They are psalms of orientation. They emphasize dependence, a posture of dependence and a heart of submission to the Lord. And the reaction, I would say, to these words is usually fairly negative. When we hear the word submission and dependence, we tend to think we're going to lose something, that something is going to be taken away from us. This is a sort of a natural response, I think. But I want you to imagine that I offered you free tickets to Disney World for two weeks. No crowds, as much and the best accommodation that was available there, and as much and as on your choice of the food. And if you want to claim the tickets, if you want to fulfill and complete your Disneyland vacation, all you have to do is get there. And you have a couple of choices. You can either walk or you can depend on your car. Are you willing to acknowledge your dependency on your car to get to Disney World? Now, what about directions? You have a couple of choices again. You can either wing it or you can use a GPS. Are you willing to submit to your GPS? So if you want your two weeks in Orlando, you will depend on your car and you will submit to your GPS. If you want to be tired, exhausted, lost, and not get to Disney World, you'll refuse to bend on your car or submit to your GPS. And this will end up being a very long walk, but it will not be in the same direction. So the message of the Psalms of Ascent is that submission to God and dependence on God is the only path to freedom to fulfillment, to completion. Now, obviously, it is much more complicated than a Disneyland vacation. Everyone wants to meet the mouse, but not honestly everyone wants to meet God. Obedience and submission, aren't we missing out on something? Orientation and dependence, they rub against the grain. I want to control my own destiny. And Psalm 124 gives us a window into this process of discipleship, into this, uh, into this process of obedience and submission and orientation and dependence. 
It looks at that as a journey, as a process. Now, most people, as they walk through the journey of the Christian life, they're, they're either born into it or they experience some sort of euphoria in conversion. But that's the beginning point. Then there is this long walk of obedience in the same direction. Now, usually that starts off with us primarily trying to co-opt God. And in that processing, discovering that God is actually not on our side. Then we get the painful lesson of maturity. I need to be on God's side. And then we get to a place of owning our adoption. The euphoria of owning our adoption. Oh, God is on my side. So we start with God is not on my side. We get to I need to be on God's side. And we finish with God is on my side. Now, this is not a linear process. In this process, we're in different parts all the time. But the goal is to move to this place of euphoria, of owning our adoption, that God is on my side. So let's step through that process through Psalm 124. Trying to co-opt God or discovering that God is not on my side. Now, Psalm 124 is a psalm of ascent, but it's actually written before the ascents began. It's around the time of Jerusalem where being conquered by David or taken back by David. It's at the beginning of David's kingship. And we see the story of this, of that this psalm is written about in 2, chapter, 2 Samuel 5. And it's specifically about the David's battle against the Philistines. Now, one re way of reading 1 and 2 Samuel, which originally were one book, is that they compare two types of kings. They compare Saul and David. They look at the king that went wrong, despite many good attributes, and the king that went right, despite many flaws. And so we're trying to get a picture here in 1 and 2 Samuel of what's the difference between these two kings. And if you look at the parallels, you see that there's the, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are set up almost as parallels. They look at the, the beginning narratives. They look at the way they're called into kingship. And then they end up battling similar people. And the Philistines, they both take on early in their, and often in their kingship careers. So soon, uh, so the Philistines, and we can see this in Saul's case, uh, we're comparing Saul and David here. Uh, when when the David and Saul, in fact, go into battle, the Philistines have a huge army. They are, in fact, the first and early adopters of the Iron Age. And you might say that they're the nuclear power of the time. They had the weapons, which were superior. They had the numbers, which were superior. They had the experience, which was superior to the Israelites. Now, Saul is going into this battle, and his soldiers with him know that. They know they're outnumbered. They're, the technology's not there. Everything is really working against them. And they start to get scared and they start to run around and they start to hide and they start to sort of dissipate a little bit. And Saul panics. Paul says, Saul says, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm supposed to wait for Samuel. That was the instructions God gave me. But I'd better get God on my side and get going before the whole army dissipates. So Saul quickly gets an altar together, does a big co-opt of God. Hey, God, I'm stressed. I don't want to do it your way. I think I know better. We should do it now. We can't wait for Samuel. Please be on my side. He tries to co-opt God because he's worried. He says he knows best. He says, I'll do it my way. 
is an orientation here of independence rather than dependence. Now, you might say, well, what was the outcome? Can we look at the outcome and decide what the, the, uh, what the, whether that was a good or bad way? Well, if you look at it by worldly standards, Saul wins the battle. So would we say it's a disaster? Certainly not by worldly standards, but I think if we're looking at discipleship as we've defined it, yes, it's a disaster in terms of an act of discipleship. It's the practice of self-sufficiency. And ask yourself, how does this work? How does this work for Saul when Goliath turns up? You see, Saul is the king. He's the one that's supposed to go out against Goliath, but he chooses not to. He sends out David instead. And what about against the Am Am Amalekites? He's told to wipe them out, including all their livestock. Now, this is a thing called harem war, and it's hard especially for moderns to hear. But what's actually going on there is that the final judgment of God is actually being foretasted. God has specifically commanded his people to bring about judgment on the Amalekites. Now, that does not happen, certainly not regularly. It did not happen in the Crusades. That was man overriding that. It does not happen now. Do not think that harem wars is a natural way that God works. It's a special way that God worked uh, in this case. So what does Saul do? He goes, he takes on the Amalekites, but you know what? He thinks to himself, I want to keep the good livestock for myself, and I'm not going to kill the king. And you wonder, well, why would he do that? Well, firstly, the good livestock is like cash, right? Why would you burn cash? Why would you destroy cash? Why would you get rid of asset? Secondly, if you're a politician in that time, especially of a middling state, the idea of killing another head of state isn't a good move. If you get a reputation of being a head of state killer, if you ever get taken over, likely is you're going to get killed yourself. So Paul here says, I'm going to go with my interest. I'm not going to kill the king, and I'm, not, and I'm going to keep the good livestock for myself. And there's something really ugly here, right? Certainly this idea of self-interest when you've been involved in God's judgment. Usually we're not involved in God's judgment. But to bring self-interest into God's judgment is really, really distasteful. And there's an incredible lack of trust here and, a, and an incredible welling up of self-interest. Now, is the outcome a disaster? Well, not by worldly standards. He won the battle and he got a whole lot of cattle. But yes, it was a disaster in terms of discipleship. He is not on a long walk of obedience in the same direction. He is on the co-opt God path. God is on my side, he's saying. Look, I beat the Philistines. I built the Amalekites. But God is not on his side. When finally Saul is killed in battle, this is the judgment that's pronounced upon him. I'm reading now from 1 Chronicles 10, 13 and 14. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So we see here that, for, that Saul never doubted God's existence. This wasn't a question of, does God exist? This was really a question of, do I trust God or do I trust myself? Of submission and dependence, of obedience <coughs> and orientation. And Saul was never there. 
He was always interested in doing it his own way. He was afraid to trust God. Now, Christians do this all the time, and we know we do, right? When it comes to money, do we tithe? Now, I'm not saying necessarily you have to tithe to North Point, but are you tithing? Are you practicing that act of giving, of saying, I belong to you? Are you giving in worship to the Lord? Do you trust and obey? Or when it comes to money, do you do it your own way? Sex, sexual ethics. There's the FOMO principle going on here. Oh, I'm young. If I don't, my hormones are raging. Let me you know, pursue my sexual desires now rather than waiting, right? Or I'm old and I'm in the marriage and it's not working the way I'd like it to work. So let me look around outside. Let me see what's going on. Let me, uh, maybe I'm missing out on something. Maybe I can do it a different way. Or time. Do you dedicate time to listening in prayer, to listening prayer? Not just the co-op God prayers, but God, where do you want me to be? God, what do you want me to be doing? God, how do you want me to be coming into your story? How do you want to convict me? How do you want to change me? Listening prayer and true Sabbath rest. Or is FOMO hitting hard? Oh my gosh, I could miss out on a sexual experience. I could miss out on something that money I could use. I could miss out on something if I spend the time just resting, reflecting, worshipping. <coughs> what about power? Status, influence, position. Who do you bless, yourself or someone else? Are you driven by faith or are you driven by FOMO, fear of missing out? Do you trust in the goodness of God? And of course it happens, I want to say this because it's important, it happens in subtle ways too. It happens in big and corporate ways within the evangelical church. The church in the United States has a history of engaging in fear-based reactive responses to what's going on in the culture around us, rather than a prayerful, faithful response that looks to God for guidance. Now, I am not advocating one side or the other of the political uh, debate, but I am saying there is a test that you can apply, and neither of them really come out well when you apply the test. If someone is using God's name to provoke fear, then there's something wrong with that and you should be suspicious of that motive. If they're not invoking God's name at all, there's something wrong with that too, right? So the parties that we have at the moment really aren't where they need to be. Neither of them are. It bothers me immensely that one co-ops the name of God often. Now, that doesn't mean I'm saying which way you should vote, but I am saying you should be aware of what's going on and you should not be comfortable with it, with either party. Don't get drawn into that. Okay. So, trying to co-opt God, discovering God is not on my side. Moving on to the second point, the painful lessons of maturity. I need to be on God's side. Now, this is a very curious psalm, 124, because as we said, it was written before the ascent to Jerusalem began. So we might ask the question, why would you adopt that psalm as a psalm of ascent? Why wouldn't you just write one to sing as you're ascending? 
And of course, we do that all the time, we just don't realize it. Many of you are probably familiar with the African American uh, spiritual song, the African spiritual, Go Down Moses, which is written about slavery in the United States, but is written from the point of view of Moses going and telling them to free the slaves in Egypt and then looking at the Exodus. And that particular perspective that the slaves had, the, the slaves in the United States had of the Exodus is unique. It gives us theological insight and the song still brings us value. So we adopt that song into the Christian hymnal and we use it in the same way we can adopt Psalm 124, written about David's battle with the Philistines but it applies, it has context. So we adopt it into the songs of ascent. And I'm going to argue later that we adopt it into the full life of discipleship. So there's a connection here in Psalm 124 between David's battle and the dangerous ascent. So let's look at this battle. And again, just like Saul, we see in verse 17 of 2 Samuel that the Philistines are going to take advantage of this new political situation. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So the valley of, the valley of Rephaim is actually where the people of Rephaim or the Emek Rephaim lived. The Emek Rephaim is just a Hebrew expression which means the, the people of the giants. So in a sense, the valley of Rephaim is really the valley of the giants. The first and original valley of the giants. And in it is probably where Goliath came from. And when David took over the kingdom, he inherited a mess. Saul had been routed. David had to re-establish the kingdom, re-establish the politics, and that didn't go easily. There was a lot of opposition, so there was a lot of infighting, and he didn't know how loyal the troops were. He was weakened by those battles. He was concerned about the strength of those allegiances. <coughs> he was weakened by having to kick the Jebusites out of Jerusalem, and the Emak Rephaim, the, the people, the giants in this valley, who were renowned as great fighters, were on the sides of the Philistines. So the Philistines had advanced weaponry. They had the best fighters. They were skilled in ironwork. They were the nuclear power of the time. Plus, they drastically outnumbered the Israelites. So the psalm here expresses the post-terror response of David. There's real terror in this situation. It's really, really terrifying. It's very real. And remember, we're reading this because we know the outcome, but David didn't know the outcome, right? It's like, how many of you read the books of the Lord of Rings and then you watched the movies? You already knew how it ended, right? So you weren't sitting there thinking, oh, I wonder if they're going to succeed or the Sauron's going to win. We don't know what's going to happen. No, we watched the whole three movies knowing how it ended and it totally changes our experience. Reading the books is a different story or reading or seeing the movie for the first time when you haven't read the books. And David's in that situation. He doesn't know how this is going to end. There's raw emotion here. Acute stress followed by immense release. And he says here, as an after reaction to winning the battle, which really he shouldn't have won. 
If the Lord had not been on our side, in verse 2, they were swallowed alive as anger, they would have swallowed us alive as anger flared against us. Now, have you ever been around someone whose nostrils are flaring? They're in a rageful state. They're out of control. You don't trust them to restrain themselves. Multiply that by 30,000, double their size, and look at them all running towards you. It's a picture of Braveheart. And now this is an uncivilized situation. This was brutal. It was violent, ancient war. The anger flared against them in verse 2. In verse 3, the flood, the torrent, the tsunami of terror washing over them. It felt like they were drowning. They were being engulfed, being swept away by this horde of marauders coming directly at them. Have you ever, ever been in a place where you, you were underwater or thrown by a wave? I remember when I was surfing and you get disoriented and you don't know which way is up at first and you swim the wrong way and then you realize you're swimming down and you're running out of air and you get that feeling after being turned and swallowed and you swallowed some water. And even then, you're not even close to drowning, but that terror rushes over you. Which way is up? Which way is up? Which way is up? For a split second, you experience the terror that David was experiencing here. Or torn by their teeth, in verse 6, ripped by a wild animal. They know this is not a, a quiet, gentle, civilized battle. This is a brutal, violent battle. And the chances are that they're going to get ripped apart. And David particularly, it was common if a king was captured uh, to, to have them torn apart, to have their eyes gouged out. So there was a, a, an incredible terror that's sitting before David as he's sitting before this uh, horde of Philistines uh, and these people of Rephaim. And then they use the, the fourth analogy in this psalm, verse 7, talking about being a caged bird where you've been uh, captured, in, in effect, by the fowler. Now, the way that worked was that the cages, you've probably seen them in mousetraps here, where the doors open one way, where you go through a little, sort of a, like a little tunnel, and you get in, but you can't get out. The trap comes in and closes you in there. And so he's like a caged bird. He feels like a caged bird in this valley. There is no escape, but somehow we have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. Somehow he gets out of the trap that's impossible to get out of. Maybe when the fowler opened the door, the bird was able to fly away. An unheard of escape from the impossible trap to get out of. So Israel was no match for the Philistines, and David really knew it. Fear that was in his bones hour after hour, waiting in expectation of the battle. Everything saying this could be disastrous. Now, I remember when I was 18 years old and I had my very first car, put it in to get fixed. They told me the transmission was broken. I just said to fix it. I forgot to ask him how much it was. Very little money in the bank. They rang me up and they told me how much it cost and I knew I couldn't pay for it. And I, I had, for a moment, just for that moment on the phone call, I had this experience of terror, fear of not being able to pay for the debt. I felt like I was drowning, like it was washing over me. I was caged. I was stuck. I was anticipating. No one ever threatened me in any way. I was young. I didn't know that there were solutions to these problems. But I anticipated the anger, the ripping, the flared nostrils when I said I haven't got the money to pay. Now, in David's case, it was much more than a moment. Right? He couldn't use a credit card. 
and he couldn't borrow from his family or withdraw from his 401k early. Perhaps our military know what this is like in combat, but I doubt any of us really understand this terror. And David knows, and he sings, only God could have rescued someone from this flood, from this anger, from this ripping, from this drowning, from this stuckness. This psalm is a tear-filled praise. It comes from the aftershock of fear. Oh my gosh, if God had not been on our side. Now our key to understanding this is to understand how David is dealing with the crisis in the crisis. What did he do? And we see that in verses 19 of Samuel 2, 5 and verses 22. And I'll read them both to you. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? And in verse 22, oh, sorry, in verse 23, because he had to fight them twice. So David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered and it goes on. And so we see here twice he inquires of the Lord. He's basically saying, uh, what's your plan, God? How do I get on your side, God? What does it mean to be submitting? What does it mean to be dependent? What does it mean to be oriented towards you? And we're supposed to compare this to Saul. We're supposed to see that in crisis, David realizes there is nowhere else to go but to God. So, so far, we've looked at God is actually not on our side. And it's important for us to be on God's side. So we're coming back to this idea, which I'm calling the euphoria of owning our adoption. God actually is on my side. So let's look at that. So what does David the psalmist mean? Because he clearly uses the words. I mean, that's what we the title of the sermon. If the Lord had not been on our side. So hasn't the big idea of the whole sermon been, it's not about co-opting God to our side, but about us working out what it means to be on God's side? And yes, so far that has been the big idea of the sermon. But there's an even bigger idea running through this psalm. Its connection to the path of God, this connection to the path of God, is a connection to home, to whom we are and to who we were created to be, to completion, to fulfilment. The pilgrims are going home to Jerusalem, and so are we going home to the new Jerusalem. <coughs> the message here is don't get too comfortable here. But as this starts to sink in, as we embrace who we are, and whose we are, the freedom and the meaning and the fullness that this brings, that this, then this path, God's path, becomes our path. He's adopted us as children and we grow into that role. His family becomes our family. His ways become our ways. His side becomes our side. We begin to see through his eyes, love through his heart, serve with his hands, submission and dependency become our pathway to deep fulfillment and to joy. God is on our side when we have developed his sensibilities. And so you ask the question, how do we develop his sensibilities? Well, this is Holy Spirit work that typically occurs when we're practicing obedience and submission. Kermit the Frog says, it is not easy being green. 
Christians should, should sing a similar song, it is not easy being childlike. It is not easy being dependent and being in submission. It's hard enough for children to do it. Anyone who has children knows this. So the road to spiritual maturity intersperses the wrestle and the struggles to submit and depend and to depend with the joy and delight in the fullness that comes from submission and dependence. It's an ironic juxtaposition. I'm going to say that again. The road to spiritual maturity intersperses the wrestle and the struggles to submit and depend with the joy and delight in the fullness that comes from submission and dependence. The ironic juxtaposition. So let's say, I not only offer you free access to Disney World, rides, food, any accommodation that you want, free from the... Uh, but I also offer you a car with a GPS. If you respond by saying, I refuse to be dependent on technology, to submit to technology, I love Disney World, but I will walk without a GPS. You are a Luddite, a technophobic fool. If God offers to wipe away every tear of suffering, to, be, to help you be completely free of the snares of addiction, of false pride, conceit, and self-deception, to find meaning, hope, and purpose, fulfillment in work, satisfaction in rest. Then he offers you a GPS in a car, or better still, he sends his son both as the means and the guidance, and you reject him, you are a spiritual Luddite, a faithophobic fool. So, let's conclude. And we're going to conclude by looking at verse 8 of the psalm. Verse 8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So, only the maker can control the forces of nature. Only the maker can be the author of the history of what he has made. And his name, I am who I am, I will be who I be, I will be, it denotes absolute consistency, unwavering, unchanging faithfulness to his character. So you put this together, you have the power of the creator with the faithfulness of the great I am. Psalm 124 is a reminder of the reality of the danger as well as the euphoria that comes from the deliverance from danger. It was true for David against the Philistines. It was true for the pilgrims working many miles of vulnerable, hostile territory to worship. Now, for us, it's true for us too. We do not need to fear the wrath of God. We will not drown. We will be washed. We will not be washed away in the tsunami of our own sin. We will not be ripped apart by our own selfishness and lustful desires of our hearts. We have un escaped the unescapable cage of the foulest Satan. Psalm 124 brings home the reality of the danger of our corrupt hearts and the euphoria of deliverance at the hand of God through Jesus Christ at the cross. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these psalms of ascent. We thank you for the power in your word.
Sometimes we are just anesthetized to the reality of the danger of our sin and the power and the promise of your deliverance, the hope that that brings. Father, help us. Give us hearts that just want to be obedient and in submission. Help us to see the freedom that comes from that. Help us to respond in delight to your call to fulfillment and completion. Father, we are wretched, wretched rags, and yet immeasurably valuable to us. Help us respond in love to your love, we pray. Amen.